0: Now let's turn there to the uh, last passage we read in Ephesians, Uh, chapter 5, sorry, chapter 4, no, sorry, it is chapter 5, chapter 5 and uh, verse 18, where we're told not to be drunk with wine. In which is dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right at the end of verse 19 there, we're told to sing and to make Melody in our hearts to the Lord. Make melody, or as it says literally in the Greek language, plucking the strings of your hearts. Plucking the strings of your hearts to the Lord. Now, although uh, that's our text, uh, I'm not really going to get round to these words as such until uh, tonight, God willing. But I want this morning to lay the foundation for even understanding it. What does he mean by telling us that we are to pluck the strings of our hearts when we worship God? I want to lay the foundation for that just by looking at the more general question of why is it that we sing to God in our churches, without musical accompaniment. It's perhaps the question that um, I'm asked most often by visitors to the church. When I talk with them for a while, they say, how is it that you, well, they say, "How how is it that you only sing psalms? That's one question. And I propose to look at that with you. Um, not next Lord's Day, but the following one, God willing. How is it that we only sing psalms, but... Hot on the heels of that one is the next one. Why do you not use musical accompaniment? Or sometimes they say, why do you sing a cappella? A cappella is the technical name for singing without musical accompaniment. It's actually a very revealing term because a cappella means as in the chapel. As in the chapel. In other words, why do you sing as in the chapel? In other words, that's an ancient reminder to us that uh, singing was always unaccompanied in the church of God until a certain point in time. But that's uh, going ahead of ourselves. But the question is, why do we worship like that? Now, it's a fair question because uh, nearly everyone else nowadays worships in a different way. Certainly in the West, they do The picture is different when you move to the East and when you move to the more Orthodox churches like the Greek or the Eastern Orthodox and so on. But in the West, of course, it's what the West does that seems to matter all the time. It's often said that Americans only seem to care about what America does. It's sometimes said and it's unkindly said. But you could say the same about the West generally, that the West uh, tends to think that what it, it does is always right. In other words, there's a a good deal of what you would call geographic and, and chronological snobbery when it comes to deciding what is right or what is practiced in the Church of God. We confine ourselves to here in the West, and when we think about what we should do, we confine ourselves to what people do in this century or in the preceding century. You need to remember that the preceding century is one out of the last two thousand years so we need to pay respect to time and we need to pay respect to the whole geography of this earth so maybe when you take that wider picture into consideration the position that we hold is not such a minority position after all but again that's getting ahead of ourselves Most of you will know that there's been a lot of confusion, particularly in the last 50 to 60 years, about how exactly God is to be worshipped. What do you do? In other words, when God calls you into his presence, eh, which is what worship is, right? It is a coming into the presence of God. There's no point here saying that God's everywhere. We're always in his presence. Well, I know that. The Bible knows that too. But there is such a thing as... Coming into the presence of God in a deliberate way, with a tribute, with an offering. God has always commanded his people to do that. Come into his courts, come into his presence and bring an offering with you. Now there's huge confusion about what you should do in such a situation. What's okay to do, what's not okay to do. Is it okay to have a drama, not to have a drama? Can we sing our own songs? Do we just sing God's songs? Can we play an instrument? Can we play 20 instruments? Does it matter which kind of instrument we play? Does it matter who plays them? Does it matter how loud they are? And so on. It's bred what you call, or what is called, the worship wars, right across the Western church. And in many churches, if you walk into them, I've had the experience myself, you'll find that nearly the whole service is conducted by a worship leader. While the pastor sits down. Because the praise item has taken over the whole service. The word service, by the way, which is the word liturgia, liturgy, means all that we offer to God. The service here, from the moment I call to worship, when I say, let us worship God, to the minute that I close it with a benediction, that is a service, that is a liturgia. The whole thing is an offering to God. That's our offering. But the worship leader seems to be in charge of it because the praise item dominates. And as you know, in some churches you can go there and they sing for 50 minutes, and there's a 10 minute address at the end. And of course, you'll find a clash of styles. Some are happy with a piano tinkling in a corner, others want a lot of noise. Um, some want the music to be more classical, others want it to be rock-orientated. And of course it's a matter of style and taste. And to me it doesn't matter really how you dress up that argument, it is one of style and taste. I, I don't see why it's okay for a piano but not okay for an orchestra. I've never understood that. In fact, the last psalm that we sang there is a noisy psalm. It doesn't picture a piano tinkling in a corner at all. It's got cymbals clashing. It's got several instruments listed. So really, I have little sympathy, to be honest, with people who just want one instrument or two. If your argument is that the Bible allows instruments, well, the same Bible that allows them allows a lot. So you've got to watch that your position on these things is not guided by your culture or guided by your taste, like the instruments that you like. You want a cello, but you don't want a synthesizer. Why? Well, indeed, why? This is the question. Our position, I said a minute ago, is a minority position. Fair enough. Certainly in the West, it is absolutely a minority position. But at the same time, you need to remember something else. When you've got a minority position, you tend to feel that the burden of proof is on you to explain your position or on me to explain mine. But I never feel the burden of proof when it comes to this particular thing. Neither should you. If someone asks you why you don't worship with musical instruments, you should just go back and say, why do you do it? The reason that I never feel the burden of proof is is very simple. To take the content of what we sing itself, now I'm not going to deal with that today at all, but of course most people sing a wide variety of songs now, but it is a fact that for the first three centuries in the life of the Christian church, everywhere they sang the Psalms. Now you may say, well, that's just the first three centuries, it's not all that important, but actually it is for reasons that we'll see later. But when it comes to musical accompaniment, it's even more staggering than that, because anywhere you went, anywhere you traveled, from the East, um, you went to Constantinople, or you came West into Europe, anywhere you went, no music for the first 800 years of the church's existence. That's a long time. Even in the 12th century, you would hardly find any church that was singing to musical accompaniment. Not until the 13th century had it become a bit more common. To this day, even the Eastern Orthodox Church does not use musical accompaniment in its worship. The point I'm making there is very simple. The people who use it are the innovators, right? very plain, for the first thousand years, not there, okay? So if you're bringing it in, you're the one who's changing the matter, right? You are the innovator. And if you are doing anything like that after a thousand years of uniform practice in the church, think about that for a minute. After a thousand years of uniform practice, reaching from the apostles onwards, if you are changing that, you are the one who needs to explain why in other words the burden of proof really falls on you especially when jesus said that the apostles were only to teach and to observe whatever he had commanded them and of course as god says elsewhere we are not to add to that and we are not to take away from it but having said that i acknowledge that when you're in a minority position you need to kind of justify it so i'm happy to do that and I want to look with you this morning at what the Bible actually says about worshiping with music. By the way, it's worth saying that we do worship with music, but not with musical instruments. We are to sing because we believe God has commanded us to sing, uh, but not with instruments. Now, of course, people who believe we should use them say, well, the reason we should use them is very simple. They were obviously involved in Old Testament worship. They'll say, we admit it doesn't appear in the New Testament. They don't appear, except in the book of Revelation at the end, where they're tied to heaven. So we admit we we don't see them in the New Testament, but we do see them a lot in the Old Testament. And they weren't part of the sacrifices that Jesus abolished. He clearly did abolish them. The music wasn't part of the sacrifices. So we've got no command to stop using them. Surely we just carry on using what God clearly commanded to be used. And as for the fact that the New Testament is silent, well, surely there's a simple reason for that. They're just not mentioned, that's all. The fact that they're not mentioned doesn't mean that we shouldn't use them. Now, that argument may sound plausible enough. Until you... Realized that it could be used of a lot of other things. For example, incense was used in the worship of the Old Testament. So was holy oil. So was holy bread. So were special vestments that were worn by particular people. You could say, well, because these were not repealed, maybe they have a place in New Covenant worship too. Maybe we should be building tabernacle like structures and Worshipping God elaborately with smells and with sounds, just like they used in the Old Testament. Maybe the argument isn't so straightforward after all. Let's see if we can understand it. Let me begin with the silence issue in the New Testament. On the face of it, it's a pretty deafening silence. I'm the first to be aware that arguments from silence are a bit perilous sometimes. I know it's not safe to say things like, well, we don't see it in the New Testament, therefore it's not there. We have to be careful about that. That's true. But sometimes a silence is important. And this is one of the occasions where silence is important, and I'll tell you why. It's because worship itself is referred to quite often in the New Testament. Now, if worship wasn't referred to, I take your point that silence is not that important. But if worship is referred to, and it's frequently discussed, but there's no mention of musical instruments, it becomes a little bit different. In First Corinthians, as we'll see, as we make our way through that letter, we're just taking a break from it for this reason today. But as we'll see, there are a good... Four chapters given over to worship in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. It's not a word about the use of musical instruments. In the first letter of Paul to Timothy, and, and indeed the second one, and the letter to Titus, there's lots of reference to worship. In fact, 1 Timothy is written so that Timothy would know how to conduct public worship in the church. That's the purpose of writing it, that he would know fully how to conduct public worship in the church. No mention. Of musical instruments at all. Now, if they were being played regularly, that's quite an amazing thing, because in the Old Testament there were strict rules about who played them, when they were to be played, what was to be played. All that was governed tightly. So you would expect some kind of questions around this issue. Or or take the Gentile churches like Corinth. I mean, we've been looking at Corinth. You've seen the kind of place it was, a very Gentile cosmopolitan kind of place, where all kinds of worship took place in connection with mystery religions from the Far East that had been imported into Corinth. So they were used to these things. You would expect this newly converted group to have some kind of questions about, again who plays, when to be played, what to be played, not a word. Plenty of discussion about prophecy and preaching, and prayer and so on, and the gifts that were bestowed on the church, which we'll have to leave to another time, but not a word about music at all. Now that's quite remarkable. Why is that? And I suppose you could widen out that question and say, in the era following the apostles, right, let's take the very early church fathers like Irenaeus, who who was a disciple of John uh, himself, the Apostle John. Why do we find no advocate for musical instruments? In the first two generations of the apostles... Why is there not one single Christian writer, you see, amongst the multitude of church fathers, why is there not one who says, well, we should actually have music in our churches? Because, as I said, none of them did. From Antioch, to Constantinople, to wherever you are, none of them did. Why is there not one church father who said, well, it's only 60 years or so since the apostles told us we should be worshipping with music? You don't find. In fact, the church fathers are unanimous. You seldom find them unanimous about a lot of things, but they are unanimous that there should be no musical accompaniment in the church. Why are things like that? Well, let's take a step backward. I want to take a step backward to make an important distinction for you. And I think once you grasp this distinction, you'll actually, well on your way, not just to understanding music in church, but to understanding a lot of things. The worship of the church is not based on the temple or the tabernacle that preceded it. The The tabernacle and the temple are one. I'll come to that a little later. But the worship of the church was never based on the tabernacle or temple. It was based on the synagogue The ordinary, weekly place of Jewish worship. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, um, the, the gathered congregation is called a synagogue in the New Testament. It's compared with a temple sometimes, but it's actually called a synagogue. You remember that famous passage where James tells us not to treat people differently when they come to church, according to their rank in society. He so says if you see come, someone coming in and their clothes indicate that they're, they're very high up socially, and you see another person coming in and it indicates that they're of a lower social rank, let me say again that's got nothing to do with dressing formally and informally. It's got everything to do with wealth and status. Okay? You can have a poor man in a suit. You can have a rich man in smart Uh, expensive casual clothing nothing to do with that it's to do with rank and society okay now he says if a man comes into your assembly wearing fine clothes now see that word assembly it's this word synagogue james calls the early churches worshiping jerusalem he calls them synagogues meeting places that's what the word synagogue means it means a meeting place Now, what was the meeting place? Well, the meeting place was where they worshipped every week, like I said. You You need to make a distinction between ordinary worship and extraordinary worship in the Old Testament, okay? I mentioned a distinction that you need to make. You need to make this one. Ordinary worship and extraordinary worship. Ordinary worship always happened in the synagogue. The synagogue was the place where families gathered every Sabbath day. I know there's some people who say that the synagogue never appeared until the exile was over. Well, that's a piece of nonsense. Where do you think people worshipped from week to week? There were synagogues in every village, in every town, and in every city. I mean, a place like Jerusalem had about 100 at least synagogues. I mean, there's one writer who says there were nearly 400, but most people find that hard to believe, but there were at least 100 synagogues where people attended every Sabbath day. You attended there as families. No, you would attend there through the week, sometimes for a prayer meeting. You would attend through the week, too, for teaching because the school was effectively located inside the synagogue, usually. But first and foremost, it was the place of worship on the Sabbath day. And the worship in the synagogue was a particular form of worship. You'll recognize it if I describe it to you. The people are called to worship, They sit in benches, usually, and there is a reading of scripture. There was a little chest containing all the scrolls of God's word, the law and the prophets. So a scroll would be taken out. You remember how Jesus took out the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and he opened it and he read from Isaiah 61. There was a singing of Psalms. The person leading the worship would expound the passage that was read. He would open it out explaining its meaning and applying its significance. When the service was over, if a priest was present, which was usually so, there would be a blessing pronounced. The furniture was straightforward. Just benches. A bench at the front where the elders sat. And there was a raised platform where the Rabbi, the teacher, would teach the word. You recognize that, yes? You recognize it. Any Presbyterian with a sense of history will recognize that kind of worship. It's identical to our own. The only difference is that the New Testament books are in our Bible, along with the Old Testament ones, and that the Messiah they preached as yet to come is a Messiah that we have preached as having already come. It's the only difference. First century Jew wouldn't see the difference walking in here. In fact, the old belief that men and women sat separately in the synagogue has recently been dismissed on the basis of newly found evidence that they did not sit separately. So, no difference. No instruments, by the way. In fact, you won't find an instrument in any synagogue until 1810 in Germany. It's a long, long time (laughs) without them, yeah? A long, long time without them. 1810 in Germany. And even today, the stricter synagogues don't have them. So that's the ordinary ordinary weekly Sabbath. So let's say for the sake of argument, let's say you were a a little girl in Cana in Galilee. You would have your local synagogue there. And you would go to church with your parents. This is where you would go, to the local synagogue. And you would hear the law and the prophets being preached, Sabbath to Sabbath, the Psalms being sung, and a prayer offered. But second, you had extraordinary worship in the Old Testament. That took place either in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, I mentioned before that these two buildings were one. They are, essentially. They had the same kind of furniture. You've got the lampstand. You've got the table with the showbread, you've got the big bronze altar, you've got the golden altar of incense, you've got the Ark of the Covenant inside, you've got the fancy elaborate curtains, you, you've got the sacrifice, the smoke, all you've got that in the tabernacle and the temple the reason the tabernacle was there was because Israel were a wandering people they were wandering through the wilderness and the Levites had a quick way that was God given of just packing up the tabernacle and moving on till they settled in the next place and they lifted the tabernacle. Now, when they arrived in the land of promise, the tabernacle gave way to a temple, a building that is permanently located. So that's why I'm saying they're one. The tabernacle's only a tent because there are wandering people. But once they reach their destination, it's a permanent building. But you'll notice there's only one temple. You don't have hundreds or thousands dotted through the land. You've just got one Centrally located in the heart of Jerusalem, and right away, if you walk inside it, you're struck with a difference. And you think maybe of a twelve-year-old child who's never been here before because he wasn't actually required, so he's never been here before. And he walks inside, and it's totally unlike any worship experience that he's ever experienced before. The sounds, the smells, the sight. There's a gorgeously robed priesthood with vestments that all have significance from the blessed plate to the turban to the plate on the turban, everything about it, the sweet incense, the overpowering smells of these things, the altars, the holy bread, the sacred curtains, the sacred lampstand, and the slaughtered animals. Never seen anything like this before. And they wouldn't be required to see it except three times a year when they became adults. Just three times a year, that's all. Why was it there at all? Well, I've often used this term to describe it. I think in a way it's the best term because God appointed it to be a giant visual aid. It's a giant visual aid of Christ and his work. In other words, before Christ had actually come into this world, uh, God prefigured him and prepared the way for him by instituting a single place of worship where the glory of Christ was unfolded. So you see him in the priesthood. You see him in the breastplate. You see him in the clothing. You see him in the altar. You see him in the sacrifice. You see him in the golden altar. You smell him in the incense. You see him in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Shekinah glory. All these things speak of Christ. You see him in the lampstand. You taste him in the holy bread. Everything about the tabernacle slash temple was preaching Jesus Christ. And most of it was done for you. You observed it a giant visual aid, three times a year. Now, I hope you're beginning to see right away the difference between ordinary, weekly, yearly worship in the synagogue and a special occasional treat to the temple where the Messiah was brought powerfully before them. Now, the fact of the matter is, that the music appears in the temple. It does not appear in the synagogue. That leads us to the assumption, right? Just know it's only assumption, but it's a strong assumption. It leads us to the assumption that music has something to do with types, ceremonies, something typological, It's got something to do, after all, with priesthood, with sacrifice. It doesn't have to do with what's permanent and regular. It's got something to do with what's temporary, special, and extraordinary. Now, from there, I think the best way to move forward is like this. I want to look first of all with you at music in the tabernacle and temple. What was it like? Again, who played it? When? Why? And once we have a good look at that, let's see if we're in a place to understand why there's no music in the New Testament church and why for a good ten centuries there's no worship in the New Covenant church at all. I'll just make a start on that for the rest of our time today, just for a short while, but I'll leave the bulk of it until tonight. So let's begin with the tabernacle and the temple. God gave detailed plans for both. God told Moses to build the temple according to the pattern that he would receive in the mount. Now you'll remember that Moses was brought up to Mount Sinai by God. And uh, God gave Moses, of course, all the commandments that are given us in the Old Covenant. And as well as giving us these commandments, which include the Ten Commandments and so on, he also gave special instructions for a special building of worship. Not an ordinary place of worship, but an extraordinary place of worship. And he told him to make sure that he built it exactly according to the pattern That was given him on the mount. I want you to notice, by the way, at every point where God is prescribing his worship that he's extremely jealous about it. That's one of the first lessons you learn in the Bible. It's a few months back now. It's probably the best part of a year since we saw Cain and Abel coming to worship God at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. At the entrance of the Garden of Eden, God's presence was there. Uh, Cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way, a representation of God in his judgment. Cain and Abel came into that presence of God. Abel, you'll remember, brought the sacrifice that God had required of him. Cain brought a good one, but not the one that God had required. It looked good, it was costly, but not the one that God asked for. God rejected Cain, and he rejected his sacrifice. From then on, right down through the Bible, throughout history, we have periodic reminders that you come to me on my terms, not on your own. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you don't decide what tribute you bring. You don't decide the covenantal offering. I dictate what the covenantal offering is. And I declare what is acceptable to me and what is not in worship. Perhaps the most powerful reminder of it was actually on the very day that the tabernacle was first consecrated. And uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, gorgeously clothed in their priestly clothing, uh, for the very first time, took fire to offer it on the incense, and God struck them both dead because they had not taken the fire from where God told them to take the fire from. And they buried them that day, and there was to be no lamentation, no public lamentation that day. Because the decisive lesson to be learned at the beginning of things... See, very often God comes at the beginning of a thing. The decisive lesson to be learned at the beginning was that I must be held in reverence by all who approach me, says the Lord. You can look up that text in Leviticus, chapter 10. I must be held in reverence by all who approach me, says the Lord. In other words, on my terms and in my way. That's why we don't dare add to our own liturgy today anything that God hasn't actually asked us to do. So if you say, for example, why don't we have a dramatic sketch at the frontier, showing how Samson killed a lion or something like that? Well... I'm not saying that there might not be a place where you could have children doing such a thing. But that place is not in a worship assembly. It's no part of a liturgy. It is no part of what God has offered us to do as a service to himself, right? That's the answer all the time. Has God asked for it? If not, we don't offer it. We don't offer it. So Moses was given detailed plans, everything to be done according to the pattern. When David was replacing the tabernacle with a permanent, long-standing temple, he emphasizes exactly the same things. Interestingly, he wasn't allowed to build it himself because he was a man of blood. He was a soldier. Now, his son Solomon was not a soldier. Solomon never fought a battle in his life. I think there's a typological reason for that. He is... uh, Solomon, Shalom, he is the Prince of Peace, so he's not a man of war. But David gathers the materials for the temple, he's not allowed to build it, but he gathers the materials, the gold, the silver, everything, and he gives detailed regulations about something new, how the priests are to be organized, how the Levites are to be organized, how song is to be sung, and for the first time, how certain instruments are are to be played. So with the tabernacle and temple, music begins to appear. Now I'm not going to touch the tabernacle just now, but let me just say, the temple, but let me just say something about the tabernacle. The tabernacle stood for 400 years. There was only one instrument connected with it. Right? So remember, all the time in the synagogues, no instruments. But then when the tabernacle is erected, God says to Moses, he says, I want you to make two trumpets. You'll notice that the guideline for making the trumpet was very specific. It wasn't actually like any trumpet uh, Moses would have seen in Egypt. Uh, that's important for a reason, I'll say tonight. Quite unique form of trumpet. In its time, we're more familiar with it now, having a long, thin uh, pipe. It was to be blown by the priests and it was to be blown in connection with gathering the congregation and in connection with the movement of the tabernacle. I mean, if it blew in a certain way, uh, the people were to recognize there's a war. So there would be summoned for war. Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says about the preaching of the gospel, if the trumpet sounds an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? When he's comparing that to the preaching of the word, that the preaching of the word must be clear all the time. The preacher must discern the signs of the times. The preacher must call the people to obedience, must call the people to respond properly as God would have them respond to any given situation. If the trumpet sounds an uncertain sound, who shall prepare themselves for battle? And that relates a lot to what I was saying last Sabbath evening. The, the reason many Christians haven't a clue what to fight or what to fight for or how to fight is because there's no note of certainty. It's like I said, it's maybes, possibly some perhapses. These things don't make martyrs. So for 400 years, there is no instrument in worship. But the occasional blow in the tabernacle to gather the congregation. It remains like that until David is called to build the temple. He then does something quite different, something remarkable. He invents instruments and he appoints them for a special use. All that is clearing the way to get to our text. Which is telling us that under the new covenant, as Hebrews puts it, we offer the calves of our lips. That's our sacrifice. And as we're told here in Ephesians, that we pluck the strings of our hearts. I'll pick this up tonight. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, uh, we pray to recognize that we are bound to do your will. But we pray never to see that as a burden, but rather as something that we are privileged to do. We are told under the prophecy of Isaiah that the angels in heaven uh, veil their faces in your presence and that they are always ready to serve. And we pray that that would be true of ourselves, and that our question would always be the question that Saul of Tarsus had when he was converted. Lord, what will you have me to do? And when worship is becoming more and more confused and chaotic, we pray that you would work in people's hearts, that they would ask more fundamental questions. Instead of asking what might please ourselves or what might please the Lord or what might please other people, we pray to ask what you require of us under the terms of the new covenant. In these things, O Lord, reform us and give us grace to reform ourselves and with kindness and charity to seek to reform others too, even as in many things we ourselves may need reformation. O oh Lord, help us too in our singing to pluck these strings of the heart. For if music expresses joy and gladness, then our hearts should express the same. And when we sing, and even when we sing now, We pray to sing heartily, to sing to the Lord, to sing cheerfully, for you are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name, Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 43 on page 264. In verse 3, there's a, a prayer for God to send his truth with light and with power. Send thy light forth in thy truth. Let them be guides to me and bring me to thine holy hill, even where thy dwellings be. So notice he's going to the tabernacle here. Again, he is a man who is instructed to play the harp in the tabernacle or in the temple, then will I to God's altar go, to God my chiefest joy, yea, God, my God, thy name to praise, my harp I will employ. Why art thou then cast down, my soul? What should discourage thee, and why with vexing thoughts art thou disquieted in me? Still trust in God, for him to praise good cause I yet shall have, of my countenance is the health my God that doth me save we'll stand to sing these last four stanzas to the praise of God